0: It was a question Jesus actually asked. A question he asked his disciples in Matthew sixteen fifteen, And he said to them, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And back in the day, Jesus got many answers. Now, he didn't ask this question because he was confused or having some temporary amnesia and forgot who he was. He wanted to see who they understood him to be. Now, they understood it a whole lot more clearly later on when he ascended into heaven, but they did give him the right answer at the time as well. But before they gave him the right answer, they talked about a whole lot of other answers who people thought this Jesus was. Answers like they said, well, he's John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or some other Old Testament prophet. People had all these different ideas who Jesus was. And even today, people have all sorts of different ideas who Jesus is. Maybe you've heard some of them. If we ask people today, we get all sorts of different answers. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses would say that he's God's created son, who God created before he created the world, and he created the world through him. He also happens to be Michael the Archangel at the same time. Several different identities there. Dan Brown in the book The Da Vinci Code, would suggest that Jesus was just a man, a mere mortal, and that years later, 300-odd years later, the church deified Jesus and started worshipping him. Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, in quoting T.A. Wells, a professor of German language, um, it's an interesting relevant authority in the area, I guess, suggested that maybe Jesus never even existed. He's since backed away from that claim because of the monumental evidence against that. And people within the Islamic religion believe that Jesus was a prophet, a great prophet, but he wasn't divine. And among other things, that he didn't actually die on the cross, like the Bible says he did. But then we come back to Peter's answer. Uh, People gave all these different answers. You're a prophet, uh, you're Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist. But Peter's answer was, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter's affirmation here of who Jesus was points to Jesus being more than just a man, more than just a prophet, more than just a teacher, but being God's divine son. So as we consider this question, this question that Jesus asks, who do you say I am, we'll look at three main points. Firstly, we'll look at that Jesus is more than a prophet, he's the divine messiah. Secondly, we'll look at Jesus is more than a son. He's God's son. And finally, we'll look at that Jesus is more than a God. Jesus is God. So firstly, Jesus is more than a prophet. He's the divine Messiah. Jesus is more than a prophet. He's the divine Messiah. Remember, back in that passage that we were talking about, from Matthew 16, there were all these different answers. You're John the Baptist. You're Elijah, you're Jeremiah, some other Old Testament prophet. I mentioned before, within Islam, Jesus is revered as a great prophet. But for Christians, prophet's probably not the first word we'd think of when we describe Jesus. It wouldn't be the first word that comes to our lips when we think of Jesus. Prophet, hmm, It's an interesting uh, word association there. Was Jesus a prophet? Well, by definition, sure he was a prophet. He preached God's message of judgment on evil. He preached a right response of repentance towards God. And he preached of a forgiving God that would forgive people of their sins when they repent. The Gospels also record a whole lot of specific prophecies that Jesus gave, a lot of them centering around his death and resurrection, that came true. By definition, he is a prophet. But so much more than that. He is what we'd say, not just a prophet, he's the prophet. Now you can look it up later, but the Israelites were looking for the prophet ever since the days of Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, Moses tells the people, you need to look for a new prophet, a new prophet like me. And when that prophet comes, not prophet prophet, Prophets plural, there are lots of prophets. When that prophet comes, you listen to him. And so for these all these years, the Israelites had been looking for the prophet, the prophet that was to come. When John the Baptist came on the scene, they asked John the Baptist, are you the prophet? To which he answers, no. He wasn't the prophet that was to come. That's recorded for us in uh, John one twenty-one. They asked him, are you the prophet? We come to Acts, though, and Peter makes it clear that in Acts 3, 18 and onwards, that Jesus is the prophet, this prophet that was to come to preach this gospel of repentance, to preach this gospel of forgiveness, to preach this gospel of salvation to all people. All these other prophets have been pointing towards this one prophet, this one prophet, Jesus. So, yes, Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is... Not just a prophet, he's the prophet, but so much more than that. Jesus is God's divine Messiah. Now, the characters in, in Dan, Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, make the following claim that, well, many people just assume it's true. They think, well, he's done the research, it must be true. Well, the claim is that until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet. A great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless a mortal. Jesus' establishment as a Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea, and that was a relatively close vote. Well, if this is true, if Jesus was deified somehow at the Council of Nicaea, then there's serious ramifications for everything we believe as Christians. If we want to find out what Jesus' followers really believe, though, shouldn't the place we go to be God's word, the Bible? His followers actually wrote that, was inspired by God, and it'll tell us what they actually believed. In the Bible, we find a multitude of claims about Jesus' deity, that Jesus is God. We'll go through lots of them later on in the final se- section, but let me show you one that you're probably all familiar with the very first verse and very first couple of verses of John chapter 1. In John chapter 1 we read, In the beginning was the Word, the Word meaning Jesus, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. This is pointing to Jesus as not a created being, Not merely a prophet, but in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Points to Jesus being divine. Did Jesus' followers think he was divine? Did they think he was God? Yes. I think it's pretty clear from that passage. Could it be even more plain? So any suggestion that Jesus' followers never really thought he was divine, but was pronounced divine 300-odd years later at the Council of Nicaea, seems to be easily refuted biblically, like in that passage, but can also be done historically as well. Now, at the Council of Nicaea, there was a vote. That part, Dan Brown gets right. The vote wasn't on whether Jesus was divine or not. It was on the natures of his divinity. Was he the eternal divine son of God, or was he the created son of God, still divine? It was called the Arian heresy, And Dan Brown mentions a close vote. I'm not sure what his definition of a close vote was. From the estimated 250 to 300 people that were there at the Council of Nicaea, two voted in favour of the heresy. Not very close, I wouldn't imagine, to the 250 or 300-odd. Now, I said before that Jesus is the divine Messiah, or where we get the word Christ from. We also see in the Bible that he's the promised saviour, a son of David. One who would come and rescue God's people. He's God's anointed king. He would rule God's eternal kingdom. He's the suffering servant from Isaiah that would be wounded for our transgressions. And what happened? Jesus comes along. He's in the lineage of David. He's a son of David. He died taking the punishment for all our sin, all the wrong that we've done. God raised him to the highest place, king and judge over God's great kingdom. We see Jesus perfectly fulfilling this role and promising to come again and to judge the world. So what can we believe then? That Jesus isn't just a prophet, he's the prophet, the promised one, but even more so he's the divine messiah. Now, secondly, I said that Jesus wasn't just a son, he's God's son. Jesus isn't just a son, he's God's son. Now, throughout the Gospels, Jesus has given many titles. You've probably read many of them. Titles like Lord, Rabbi, Teacher, Messiah, King. But one title that tells us something about Jesus' position in the Godhead is the title Son of God. You remember earlier on Peter's response, he says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. We see it in the Apostles' Creed that we quote every so often when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord. In our Christian culture, we often teach that Jesus is God's son and we just leave it at that. But back in the day, back in the first century, the title Son of God had a lot more common usage which might confuse people from, from that time period. Let's have a look at a few of the different ways the title Son of God was used at the time. Now, the nation of Israel itself was spoken of as God's Son. In Exodus 4.22, God calls the nation of Israel his Son. In Luke 3, where we've got the genealogy of Jesus showing the lineage of Jesus, when it gets back to Adam, the very first person on the earth that God created, It talks about Adam being the son of God, and God created him. In Psalm 89, it talks about King David, the great king of Israel, being a son of God. But even in non-Christian circles, even in non-Jewish circles, the son of God title was fairly applicable as well, was widely used. The Roman emperors proclaimed themselves to be sons of God. The official title of Augustus Caesar was Emperor Caesar Augustus, Son of God. Even more so, they minted it on their coins to reinforce this title, Son of God. Every time you paid for something, every time you pulled out a coin, it was there right before you. This is the emperor, Son of God, Son of the Divine. Now, later on, this title, Son of God, didn't seem enough for some. One of the Roman emperors in the first century, Domitian, went one step further and rather than waiting to be dead until he was deified and his son be called the Son of God, he declared himself to be God and proclaimed that people had to worship him as God in his own lifetime rather than waiting for someone else to declare him God after his dead. Talk about having some sort of an ego problem. It wasn't enough to wait for you to die to be God. This guy thought he could have it in his lifetime as well. Amongst all of this, amongst the nation of Israel, the genealogies, King David, the Roman emperor, we have Jesus come along. And we have Jesus come along who claims to be son of God. What does it mean? Sometimes it's easier to say what it doesn't mean. And so it doesn't mean that Jesus, or the God rather, the father had intercourse with Mary and used her to mother his baby. The Bible doesn't teach some sort of weird distortion, as some of us suggest, of the Trinity consisting of the Father, the Son, and Mary. It's not a biological sonship. The Son of God doesn't mean that Jesus came into existence when he was born on the earth. John 1.1 reminds us that Jesus was there in the beginning, before the creation of the whole, uh, the whole earth. In fact, everything was created through him and by him and for him. So, it's not a created sonship. The Son of God wasn't like the Roman emperors either. It wasn't powerful men who decided to heap up titles upon themselves because they could. Jewish men wouldn't have fallen for this for an instant. They declared there's only one God, as Jesus declared. It's God Himself that Jesus' baptism declares for everyone there This is my Son. In Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. So it's not an egotistical sonship of heaping up titles upon oneself. What is it? Well, the Nicene Creed records that Jesus is the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. That's to say that Jesus is God's Son. Jesus has always been God's Son. He didn't come into existence at some point, eternally begotten of the Father. He's eternally been there. Is it a mystery? Well, it's as much as a mystery as the Father's eternal. He never came into being. He never was created either. So this sonship is less about someone coming into existence and more about the relational aspect of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, relationally, the Bible speaks about Jesus submitting to his Father, and obeying what his father said. He said, I come to this world and I obey my father's commands. Now, that doesn't mean he's inferior, just as it doesn't mean that a wife who biblically submits to her husband's inferior or a church member who biblically submits to their elders, as we heard last week, is inferior to their elders. They're doing what God wants them to do. They're not inferior. They have a different role, a different responsibility. And this responsibility, in Jesus' case, is the perfect, the holy, the divine son of God that came, sacrificed himself, and now rules as king over God's kingdom. Now let's take a a look at, for a moment, the passage that we had read to us from Hebrews chapter 1. It tells us a lot about Jesus' role and his work as the son. It starts off, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times, and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. Jesus came and communicates God's truth to us. He's God's mouthpiece, God's Son. He then tells us he owns the whole universe, whom he appointed heir of all things. In other places it says things seen and unseen are all created by him and for him and through him. It then moves on. He made the universe. Through whom he made the universe. In verse 3, it moves on telling us that if we want to know what God's like, Jesus is the one that we look to. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact repreta- re- representation of his being. It tells us that he keeps everything, the whole universe running, sustaining all things by his powerful word. It tells us that he was a sacrifice for sins, for all our sins. After he pur- provided purification for our sins, and then it says that he sits at God's right hand in heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. It tells us that he's superior to all the angels. He's not just a created being or an angel, a servant of God. Verse 4 tells us he became much as superior to the angels as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. In verse 6, it tells, them, it tells us that God's angels worshipped Jesus. He wasn't just a supreme angel. He was the one that they actually worshipped themselves. It tells us in verse 8 that he's the judge over everything. God appoints him as the judge over everything. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And God addresses his Son as God as well. And righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. The other chapter that we had read to us before as well, Colossians 1, 15 through 23, talks again of this sonship of Jesus being the Son of God, God the Son. It tells us, starting at verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn over all creation seems an unusual term. Typically when we think of firstborn, we think of the first to be born. Uh, if we have a whole bunch of kids and the oldest one, that's the firstborn. And some people have suggested that this firstborn means that well, Jesus was the first created thing and everything else was created after him. He was the first thing to be created. But this firstborn doesn't necessarily mean, and especially in this case, doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus is created, the first thing to be created. It's actually referring here, and the the Greek word used gives a lot wider range of meaning that he takes not he wasn't the first to be created but he takes the prime position the firstborn in ancient culture was the one that took the prime position in the family, the prime position among the children the top position this is the position that Jesus takes and it was common to refer to people as the firstborn even if they weren't the firstborn if they had a prime position for example, in Psalm 89, we have King David. Now, King David, was he the firstborn? No, he was the, the little kid that was tending to the sheep. All the firstborn were paraded before Samuel, before David, because Jesse, his father, thought, oh, surely this will be the anointed one, or this one, or this one. But in Psalm 89, God calls David his firstborn, when he clearly wasn't the firstborn. Just as we can call Jesus Jesus, the firstborn over all creation, he's the ruler, the king, takes the prime position over all creation because he rules it. The following verse in verse 16 reinforces this concept. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rules or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Was there anything that Jesus didn't create? No. Jesus wasn't created. Everything that was created was created by Jesus, for Jesus, and is ruled by Jesus. Think back to our Roman emperors. They call themselves sons of God. But no emperor, no earthly king, could ever, with any credibility, make some sort of a claim, saying, well, everything was created by me, for me, through me. It seems ridiculous. But when we apply this title to Jesus... The Son of God is pretty clear. He is the creator. Everything in the earth, everything that we see, everything that we don't see, visible and invisible, by him, for him, through him. Jesus makes the claim often in the Gospels that he is the Son of God. But not everyone was very happy about this. In fact, in John 5.18, when Jesus is making this claim, the people around are very unhappy. They say for this reason they tried all the more to kill him not only was he breaking the sabbath but was even calling god his father making himself equal with god this brings us to our final point jesus was more than a god he is god our final point jesus is more than a god he is god now, many religions have varying numbers of gods. Maybe as few as one. Christians believe in one God. Islam believes in one God. Judaism and others believe in one God. Some have a few, some have many. Hinduism and ancient Roman religions, Greek and Egyptian religions had many gods. Christians believe in one God, a Trinity. Three persons Father, Son, and Spirit, all God. But some religions have a bit of a mixture of the two, which makes it a bit more confusing. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses would claim to be monotheists, that is, they believe in one God, but they also believe that men, angels, Satan, and Jesus are all gods just of different levels, have different powers, and they don't worship all those other gods, they just worship the one God. Now, I spent hours recently talking to Jehovah's Witnesses and Lengthy email exchanges back and forward talking about the nature of Jesus. And one thing they make very clear is they believe Jesus is a God, just a lesser God. He's not the almighty God, the all-powerful God. He's not what we'd call Yahweh or Jehovah, using God's covenantal name from the Old Testament. They say, no, no, he's not that God. He's just a God. He's a subservient God to this God, a created God. Now, Christians believe, by definition, in the Trinity, that Jesus was the almighty God. He's Yahweh, or Jehovah, as they would say. And he's as much as Yahweh as the Father is Yahweh, and as the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Three persons, each fully God. Now, when you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, they would claim that Jesus isn't this God. Jesus always obeys the Father. He's a lesser created God which is pretty similar to the Arian heresy that we heard that was cleared up at the Council of Nicaea thousands of years ago. Well, what does God's Word say? This is the place that we find this sort of truth out. This should be the only place that we find this sort of truth out. In the New Testament, Jesus never says, I am Yahweh, which they, tra- uh, which they translate as Jehovah. He never says it, but with good reason. Yahweh is a Hebrew word. It's God's covenantal name in Hebrew. New Testament's written in Greek. It doesn't actually contain the word Yahweh or Jehovah anywhere. It's just not there. It instead uses the same word to refer to God the Father and to Jesus right the way through. It uses the word Kyrios, which we would translate in most of our modern translations as Lord or God. So it uses the same word but Jehovah's Witness translators have selectively decided to mistranslate their New Testaments. Lots of verses where it specifically addresses the Father, they translate it as Jehovah. They translate this word kurios. And when it specifically uh, is directed towards Jesus, they translate it as Lord. And so it adds even more to the confusion when you mistranslate your New Testament of which one it's referring to. And it seems that there's a a big gulf between Jesus and God, whereas it's actually the same word that's used. But having a look through our New Testaments, I think there's more than ample evidence that Jesus is Yahweh, that Jesus is God's covenant, that Jesus is God, the Almighty God. So let's take a look at a few. We'll skip through a bit of the New Testament and look at a multitude of examples of where this is true. One common one is in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 tells us that who, being in the very nature God, referring to Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now this Greek word, where it talks about being in the very nature God, it uses the word morphe, often translated the word form, but it's literally meaning, in in, in this sense, because God's spirit, it's literally meaning he's in the very essence God, the very nature God. It describes the unique qualities that make God God. Now, this passage also talks about did not consider a quality with God something to be grasped. Now, I think that term there can... Uh, make it a bit confusing for us at times. We think about grasp, we think about something that we don't have and going to grasp it. You know, we're going from one monkey bar to the next monkey bar, we grasp the next one. We, we grasp after something we don't have. But the term here doesn't actually mean that. It's meaning something more literally that it means held on to. Something that is has been grasped already. Something that someone does have, and holding on to it rather than letting it go. So it's not that Jesus wasn't God and tried to reach out and become God. Jesus was already God. He didn't need to try and grasp and and hang on to that, that Godship. And from this, we see that he, being fully God, he also came down and became fully man, a human but this doctrine isn't one that's just found in Philippians, that's just one example of it. It's clearly repeated over and over again throughout the Bible, especially the New Testament. Let me give you a dozen or so quick examples pointing to Jesus being God, the almighty God. If you're fairly familiar with God's word, I'm sure you've heard most of these in your readings or preaching or all sorts of things in the past. And so you should be familiar with some of them, I think. We mentioned one before, John 1.1, 1, 1, where it talks about the word, Jesus, was God. Throughout this passage, Jesus is referred to exactly the same way, in exactly the same sense, as the fathers referred to. In John 5, 58, Jesus makes the claim that before Abraham was, I am. Now, that got quite a reaction from the people that were there. The reason it got quite a reaction from the people that were there is this is how God introduced himself to Moses. In Exodus 3, 14, Moses is saying, or God sends him to, to set the captives free from Egypt, sends him to speak to Pharaoh, and Moses says, who do I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am sent you. I am who I am. Jesus has picked up on this, and everyone else picked up on it as well, because when Jesus makes this claim, before Abraham was, I am, referring to himself, A whole bunch of people took up stones and wanted to stone him because they they thought he was blaspheming. Now, if Jesus wasn't God, he would be blaspheming. Essentially, what he's doing here is he's using the Greek first-person equivalent to the Hebrew word Yahweh. Essentially saying he is God, the almighty God. We also see through the New Testament Jesus being worshipped as only God should be worshipped. When Jesus appears to Thomas uh, after he's resurrected, uh, after he's alive again, in John 20, 28, Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God, and falls at his feet and worships him. He's worshipped in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, that we read before, by the angels in heaven, God's angels. Jesus says of himself right throughout John, but in John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. That's no claim that any mere mortal, any mere human could make. Jesus also says, Whoever has seen me me has seen the Father. I am the Father and the Father is in me. He's claiming to be the almighty God, claiming equality with God. Back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 9-7, a passage that we often read at Christmas time, it tells us of a child to be born, that child's Jesus, who will be called wonderful counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of peace. The, the rest of the New Testament authors worship Jesus the same way. Second Peter, at the start of Second Peter 1:1, 1, 1, it tells us of God, the God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one that they are worshiping. Further on, in 1 in Timothy 3:16, it talks about Jesus being God manifest in the flesh. In Titus 2:13 it talks about the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We see people being baptized in what? The name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. We see people grant, Jesus granting people forgiveness of their sins. When Sarah did the kids talk earlier on, the, the paralytic man, he said your sins are forgiven you. Who can do that? But God We see Jesus assuming the same titles as Yahweh, as God the Father. He calls himself the first and the last. Right through Revelation, Jesus is referred to that way. We're told that every tongue will bow and every knee will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We see that Jesus is the judge over all the earth. We see that Jesus is the creator over and over and over again. He's the creator. Who created? The almighty God, Jesus the list goes on and on, and we see that Jesus isn't just a God, as if there were many, many gods that we could choose from. Jesus isn't a God. He's the almighty, all-powerful God. He is God. So we've seen three things. Jesus isn't just a prophet. He's a divine Messiah. Jesus is more than a son. He is God's son. Jesus is more than a God. Jesus is is God How should this affect how we live though I mentioned at the start that knowing the answer to this question who do you say I am or who do we say Jesus is should affect the way we live the way we respond I read recently that someone wrote a letter into Emily Post Emily Post was an etiquette expert from the last century and asked the following question What's the correct procedure when one's invited to the White House but has a previous engagement? You're invited to the White House but you can't attend, you've got a previous engagement. The reply was, an invitation to dine at the White House is a command. It automatically cancels any other engagement. What's our response to Jesus' invitation? If an invitation to the White House is not an invitation but a command, What about an invitation from God, the almighty God? Now, some people would say things like, well, I like the teachings of Jesus. He seems like a nice guy. He's a pretty good guy. Maybe we should listen or or be a bit more kind or nice like Jesus was. But if you believe that Jesus is God, the almighty God, any of these he seems like a nice guy sort of comments pale into insignificance, into in terms of who Jesus actually is. What we believe about Jesus, about who he is, should impact in how we respond to him. If Jesus is God, as the Bible clearly states, he isn't there just to be fond of or to like, he's there to be worshipped, to be lived for, to repent to, to put our trust in and to glorify. Let me end with a, a scene from the throne room of heaven that's recorded for us in Revelation Revelations 7.12 where those worshipping Jesus say, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and, and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The question for us to consider is, who do we say Jesus is? And how does that affect how we live? How does it affect our lives? Let's pray.